0: World class athletes, great coaches. What do they do when they're at their best? We don't take no for an answer. We don't take no for an answer. We don't take no for an answer. answer. Leave no doubt tonight. Leave no doubt tonight. No doubt. We're going to get him on the run, boys. Once we get him on the run, we're going to keep him on the run. And then we're going to go, 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 go. And we're not going to stop until we get across that goal line. Now you kids are probably saying to yourselves, hey, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get the world by the tail and wrap it around and pull it down and put it in my pocket. I always feel like after that intro music plays for the podcast, that... I need to have a guest someday that can break it down into like a hot 16 or start free freestyling. I don't know if my next guest can do that, but she's also, she is one of the, the best strength coaches I know. And simply because she's one of the most professional um, people I know, and also just a good person. And I think sometimes we miss that. I want to, Welcome, Molly Benetti to the show. Coach, thanks for coming on.
1: Brett, thank you for having me. I'm uh, really excited to join you this morning, and I appreciate your time.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Now, Molly, we go way back, and that's something that probably people listening to this don't know. Um, would you mind going into your background a little bit? And then, uh, you know, we can kind of collectively go into our short time together and and uh, what that's, you know, I'm glad that we've been able to keep in touch. It's been awesome watching you continue to grow throughout your career. And, you know, you're in a position now that whenever we talk, you you certainly teach me things. But can you give everybody a background, a little bit of a background?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny because I never in a million years thought I would uh, be a strength and conditioning coach. You know, you talk to a lot of people that get into it because of either their background as a, you know, collegiate athlete or their love for being in the gym and, all of that, but you know, I like to say that this kind of fell into my lap a little bit, and you know, I went into college thinking I was going to be a business major, and um, you know, luckily within my first six months of college, I was introduced to the head strength coach at Marquette and, and Todd Smith, and uh, he came and did a presentation in one of my classes, and from there I interviewed him, and literally he opened his doors um, and said anytime that I wanted to come in and and observe or just check things out, I was more than welcome, and honestly the next morning it was 5 a.m. I, I was in that weight room and honestly, for my four years at Marquette, it was something that I grew into. And I spent my full four years there uh, learning from him and in getting experience. And it was something that I grew to love. And, you know, I was a I was an athlete. I was never a collegiate athlete, but uh, I knew I loved sports. I always loved helping people. Um, you know, I found myself in leadership roles and found myself, um, you know, being really good at working with people. And that's something that I knew that I wanted to do. And then the avenue of strength and conditioning just kind of came after that. But um, so I did my I did my undergrad at Marquette. I was fortunate enough my senior year, I got to go down to Phoenix and and work at Exos. And that's where we met, obviously. And and from there, it really opened my eyes to a lot of different realms within the profession. Um, Ended up coming back, went to grad school, did an internship while I was in grad school and kind of throughout this whole process. You know, when I was young, I was I was setting my sights on I wanted to be a division one strength coach. That's what I wanted to do a lot of my experiences obviously revolved around that. And uh, I never thought it would happen as early as it did. But my first my first job out of grad school, I was 23 and got hired at Purdue University and had no real idea what I was doing. I had no idea because they don't teach you how to coach in school. They teach you how to write programs and they teach you about how to safely implement exercises. But I got into this job and I had no idea what I was doing or the other aspects that, that were involved with it. But Honestly, from there, it, it never ceased to amaze me just the opportunities that were presented to me, and never thought that it would lead me to where I am. And you know, from Purdue, I went on to the University of Louisville. I spent four years there learning under Tina Murray, uh, one of the best in the profession in terms of uh, her approach and her her commitment to bettering our profession. And I was so lucky to be mentored by her and. She no doubt set me up for every other opportunity that I will experience in my life. And because of her, I'm prepared for anything. But uh, within the last six months, just took this position at the University of South Carolina, uh, working with the women's basketball team. And so just my journey has continued to evolve a little bit and um, doors have continued to become open. And, and now I'm here and I'm learning and I'm failing. And uh, it's, it's been a pretty, pretty fun ride so far. And I'm just riding the wave.
0: That's a good way to put it. Um, you touched on a couple of things. I want to jump on one. I had no idea that you were a business major originally. I, had no- I,
1: well, yeah, I applied to college and I got into the school of business. And then within my first month of college, I said, no, this is not what, not what I wanted to do. I knew I, you know, I loved it in, in high school. I was really good at it. I was good at accounting. I was good at with numbers and good with math. And I was like, yeah, I could do this for a living. I could make some pretty good money. And then I was like, no, I don't want to sit at a desk for 12 hours a day. And I don't want to, I don't want to wear professional clothes every single day. So I actually had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew I switched to health sciences and thought maybe I wanted to be an athletic trainer, started observing there. And I quickly realized that is not what I was uh, designed to do. And then fortunately got introduced to a lot of different professions in one of my freshman year classes and, and met Todd. And honestly, that's kind of all she wrote. And just uh it started from
0: there now ironically enough though would you say you know with your experience so far wouldn't you would you agree that there's business aspects interwoven into the the performance realm meaning how you have to deal with people manage people you know so well one what, what do you think in that regard do you think that looking back you know that that you've seen corollaries there, that there's been tie-ins with with those two worlds.
1: Absolutely, uh, in a lot of different ways, and I think you hit it on the head when you said just from the organizational standpoint and the leadership standpoint. And I mean, you tie in so many different aspects. You do have to deal with numbers, you have to deal with budgets, and you have to deal with you know staffing and all of these things. And um, there's definitely carryover. And I think you know, honestly, one of the most important pieces is just the from the organizational standpoint. You don't really think about that. Especially as you're going through school, as you know, whether it's an exercise science major or whatever it is, you don't really get exposure to those kind of things, um, and so it's not really something you learn until you actually get your hands dirty and you get in the field and you realize how many things overlap. Um, but without a doubt, you know, I think my experiences, just with some of the classes that I took in in high school and in college too, have helped me. Um, but a lot of that stuff you don't, you don't learn until you just get into it. Yeah. I
0: mean, and there's no, we don't learn that. There's no real resource embedded within our field for that either, which is interesting. Um, But I said it at the beginning, I probably didn't say it very well. Um, But one of the reasons I think that you're a phenomenal coach and there's two things that always stuck out to me, both in terms of our communication and just watching you carry yourself. I think that when people are focused on being a good professional, right? Like a, just a true professional. And when they're really open to criticism and I'm not talking about like, Hey, the same the old sandwich technique, right? Where I give you praise and then I tell you something to work on. And then I end it with praise, uh, which I'd advise anybody listening to. I mean, research has shown that that is not an effective way to lead manage. It's it's funny because we're kind of taught that. And I think a lot of people, when they get put in leadership roles, it's something that inherently people gravitate to but it's not really effective. But anyway, you you were always willing to just accept criticism and not get emotional about it. You know, if oh, when I watched, whether it was Joel or anybody else kind of chat with you or anybody else on the floor, you took it and you took it as just, you know, objective and subjective data in whichever way it was presented. And immediately you saw, like I saw, you just digest that and move on. And I think sometimes that's an interesting distinction. Like We're not just... Uh, the, the one of the purposes of this podcast is to showcase coaches as professionals, not just professionals as coaches, because I think that our perception in the outside world is a little askew. We just kind of look like gym people who yell and do this and do that. And um, it's always irritated me that, you know, people can get on TED Talks and other things like, you know, from other professions yet our field is kind of like we we're we're a little rough around the edges from a professionalism standpoint what are ways that you've consciously worked on that and just kind of whether you want to consider it branding or just how you uh carry your 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 basic day-to-day comportment uh, like what what does professionalism mean to you and how do you try to display that in what you do
1: yeah that's that's a great point honestly um and that was something I, w- I would say is one of my biggest takeaways from my four years at Louisville. Um, because I had never seen an organization. I had never seen a department. I had never seen, um, a staff operate the way in which it did in terms of holding themselves and holding the entire department to such a high standard in how we conduct ourselves and how we evaluate ourselves and how, um, just how how we do what we do on a daily basis because a lot of that is not taught. Um, and so, before coming to Louisville, I honestly, I think from a professional professionalism standpoint, w- what I had learned up to that point was purely just based on how I was raised and how I was conducted. And I think I, you know, I owe a lot of that to my mom. And prior to getting to Louisville... what were those
0: values? What were the like? Could you give us examples of when you say how you were raised for anybody that? doesn't have the pleasure of maybe knowing your mom, how, how, what were some things they instilled in you early that you still really hold dear?
1: Yeah. So, you know, for me, my mom, so my mom raised me as a single parent. Um, my dad passed away when I was really little. And so I was raised by my mom and I was raised by my grandma and my grandma raised a, a family of eight on her own as well. And my mom raised me on her own. And I just saw in her the work ethic and the strength that it took. Um, to work multiple jobs, to give me every opportunity that I can imagine. Um, and just from her, I learned how to treat people. I would say that's the biggest takeaway and the biggest value that I was taught by my family is how you love people and how you, t- how you treat people, how you take them in, and how, um, I guess, how you carry yourself with a little bit of grace. Um, and I'll say both my mom and my grandma instilled that in me. And so just learning up, I think I learned how to how to work with people. I learned how to treat people. Um, I learned how to be respectful um, and just carry myself in a way that, you know, was not arrogant, not conceited at all, but just with a kind of a quiet confidence and just a quiet way of going about my business, doing what I needed to do, put my head down, um, treat people with respect. And I think a lot of that, you know, goes a long way just in terms of how you carry yourself as a professional. So, um it wasn't really until I got to Louisville that I learned how to truly act as a professional in our field and what that actually meant and that the bar has, has been set so low in terms of what is expected of us and kind of what our job is and what our role is. And like you said, we, we don't often get taken seriously and we have this, there's this perception that we just know how to lift weights. We just work within these four walls of the weight room and uh, we don't really understand people. We don't really understand how to, you know, do anything other than just lift weights and we like to yell at people and we're motivational and and all of these things but um when it comes to just the standards in terms of even just having certifications within our field like none of that is like until recently really become a thing and so i think um and even those
0: two entities fight you know that's that's the tough thing it's you look at that and even even entities we're supposed to look at and you know we all get behind because it's the right thing to do we have to get behind them but even seeing the infighting there and the posturing and all that is kind of, you just kind of look at that example and it's tough. You know, you still realize we have a long way to go. And that's not to discredit anybody working for those organizations. Like the risk that goes in and putting those things together and the, and the work those organizations do is certainly appreciated. Um, No, no business is perfect. Even things like Amazon and Apple, Google have warts, but it is tough. It just, it's a microcosm of our field, right? Mm It's still very contentious still very, you know, it goes back to what I said, stood out with you. You've always accepted criticism real well, where I feel like a lot of people in our field, and I've been, I've done this as well. You get criticized and you immediately go towards confirmation bias. You say, well, I did this because blank. It's like, "Mm, sometimes you shut up, you know, like take that, listen to people. And uh, it's definitely a goal of art of coaching, you know, to, I look at you as somebody that's a symbolic gesture of, of what I know I want the brand to represent. Like that's even why I, with the logo, there's nothing performance oriented with it. Cause I knew that, you know, when I had the chance to go speak at Microsoft, I wanted that logo to look professional there, just like it would in a weight room. I think that we, we have a responsibility to, to share our knowledge as well with, with the outside world. Cause we're always so humble and we're like, well, you know, we're going to lead from these or learn from these people, whether they're CEOs, military leaders, what have you, but People like you have tremendous things to share. Like even just what you said, your, you know, your dad passed away young, your mom and your grandma raised you like talent doesn't really manifest without some kind of trauma. And I think you're an embodiment of that. And the word you use was perfect. I actually favor the word grace far more than I do humility. I think humility gets thrown around far too much in our field and kind of in a proud way. Whereas grace, that is a verb that can be used as a verb and a noun. So as a verb, we honor or credit someone or something by your presence. And I think with what you do, you honor your mother, your grandmother, Tina, everybody that's helped you along the way with how you, you know, your comportment, the way that you carry yourself. And it's a noun, right? There's a simple elegance, there's poise, finesse. I think that you hit the nail on the head with that term. It's such a better term, in my opinion, than humility in regards to what is, you know, part of true professionalism. Does that make sense? Or yeah,
1: No, no, it absolutely does. It
0: absolutely does. Um, so when you were a part of Louisville staff and, and Tina, you know, I have only had the pleasure of meeting her once. Um, but it's, I think a lot of people understand that she drives a hardship, you know, and, and she wants to prepare you for the future. And that's great. I think that we need more of that more. If there's things that I think people in our field are lacking, I think there's a sense of personal accountability. A lot of people want to be spoon fed now. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think people being hungry uh, along with having great communication is important, but I'd be interested to know, how did you deal, one, how did she tend to deliver criticism, whether in the form of evaluation or even terms of just putting a foot up your ass if you needed it? Um, And then how have you grown to accept that criticism? Like, what are some things that you maybe did younger? Like if somebody criticized you or gave you feedback that wasn't comfortable, and how is it different now when you get that? Like, how do you reflect upon that? Yeah.
1: No, I'm I'm actually really glad that you asked that because my four years at Louisville were probably the most difficult four years of my life up to this point. Um, and without a doubt, I grew more in those four years than, you know, I had prior, you know, I was 24 when I started there, I probably grew more from 24 to 28 than I did my first 24 years of life. And I mean, I went, I went to work at Louisville because I understood that Tina was known to be hard to work for. But I also knew that if I went there and failed and learned from her, that I'd be prepared for whatever it is that I wanted to do. And honestly, my first year, I would say probably my first year and a half, I was miserable because she the way that she delivered criticism was it was like a punch in the face. And I deserved (laughs) it because I was I was young. I thought I was pretty good. And I got there and the way that, you know, the way that that department is run is so different from anywhere else that I had ever been. And so it was like walking in and trying to learn Chinese. There's just a way that everything was done. There was a language, there was a culture and I was the first person that they had hired that hadn't been there either through an internship, a graduate assistantship, or hadn't worked there for like eight plus years. And so I came in and I was in way over my head and I can't even count the times of number of times that I failed number of times that I was in Tina's office in tears and just I literally just had to take it on the chin and every day like I wanted to quit my first six months I was like what am I doing here but I also knew that if I stuck it out and I just took it for what it was that I would come out better for it and honestly I didn't take criticism very well at first Um, because I'd never been criticized like that. And I hadn't failed like that before. I'd usually I'd had pretty good success prior to that. And so it was a really, it was a really humbling experience. And um, it forced me to really think about everything that I did and be 10 steps ahead and think about all the little things that you don't even, you don't even know existed. So it was, uh, it was rough for a while, but it was really, really cool to see, I guess, the evolution of especially mine and Tina's relationship throughout my four years there, but just the growth of myself um, as a professional and just the way that I conducted every little single detail um, of every single day. And, you know, I could, I could go on forever just about my time there, but it was a, it was definitely a really difficult process. And I failed more times than I, than I can count. And because of that, I was so prepared to take on this position at South Carolina, and honestly, like I knew whenever my time was up at Louisville, I'd be prepared for you know whatever position it was, whatever came up and um, but it like you know kind of like we talked about it wasn't without uh, falling flat on my face several times
0: which which is okay, I think that criticism is an interesting topic because <clears throat> there it it keeps us from doing a lot of the things that we normally would do that would add value. And I, I've always said, you know, I think our field's a little bit too focused on proving value as opposed to providing value, you know, and, and second, and you hit the nail on the head with this earlier, you talked about it. You prove your value by being willing to improve. I'll say that again. You prove your value by being willing to improve. Now think about this, the way that athletic or the way strength and conditioning was run by you guys collectively as a staff at the time. Do you think that impacted the way that the rest of the athletic department and even the university as a whole viewed and valued strength and conditioning? Meaning, do you think that sense of professionalism helped you guys gain leverage when you needed funding for something or when you needed a little bit more autonomy? Do you, do you think that it impacted that at all or or did it not matter and you, were you guys just an afterthought regardless?
1: No, 100%. Um, 100%. I've never for one, the the athletic department at Louisville is, is really unified. Uh, It's really, uh, really a together unit, but I've never seen um, an administration value what we do and other support staff value what we do as much as they did at Louisville. And I know that's because of the 12 plus years of building that um, from you know, kind of from the ground up with Tina leading the way and whatever, whatever it was that we needed, Tina fought, you know tooth and nail for and it was a long i know it was a long process but the way that our administration played value placed value on us was evident by the amount like the infinite amount of resources that we had and the amount of the facility that we had the money that was invested into technology and not just from administration but from sport coaches and uh former former athletes that would donate and just the support around what we did, you know, they really saw us as an integral piece of everything, you know, um, in the student athlete experience. And so it was was really a a neat thing to be a part of and and really see just, and, you know, I only saw it for a few years and I know that it wasn't always the case, but to be able to come into it at a time where it was established and I never had any issues with sport coaches and what we were doing. I never had any issues coming from administration. There were Um, they were completely involved in, and we were very visible to them as well. And so um, it was a pretty cool, pretty cool relationship to experience, but also really cool to see, you know, whatever it is that we wanted, we were going to find a way and administration was going to find a way for us to get it done.
0: Yeah, it sounds like they definitely, you guys collectively did an awesome job with that. And we're going to, we're going to dive into where you're at now with South Carolina. But I think there's an important point to kind of round off that thought is, you know, when, when we talk about, Because essentially what you guys did is your internal values projected an image to the rest of the world, right? In some way, shape, or form, whether local, within the university, and beyond. Well, that's branding. And I think that branding, people forget that no matter what we think about the term, because we feel our field feels a bit contentious because we think there's some people that have been irresponsible with branding. And guess what? Our field's not unique in that. That's every field. Um, But branding is really the values you live by made real by what you do. And I think that what you discussed there is an excellent example of that, and that leads into something else I want to ask you that ties in criticism, branding, projection of values, all those things. You're active on social media, which can be a rarity with coaches. Um, I find that there's a lot of people that dabble, or they're they're just not on it in general. Uh, but you you've always had kind of a focused message. It's easy to get on social media. And play it safe and just put stuff out there that everybody's gonna rally behind. Like, oh, you know, athletes, athletes need our love, athletes need our trust. Like nobody's gonna disagree with that. And it's in my view, it's kind of playing it safe because it's lukewarm. It's yeah, people may feel good about it and like it, but are we challenging anything? Are we creating deeper discussion? I've always appreciated, like, if somebody Googles your name they can pull up a video and see you coach, you know, and they can, they can see your thoughts on things and that unwillingness to be scared or deterred by criticism is something that I think is lacking in our field. How do you approach that? How, how have you countered any doubts or fears that you've had about like, I don't know, do I want to put this out there? Do I want to have any kind of presence? You know, what, what kind of moral code do you abide by where if you think something's helpful, you're going to share it or, should I not share? Where do you find that balance for you on, on being active in social media and sharing?
1: Yeah. Uh, that's a really Not being question. scared of the
0: criticism, you know, does that make sense? My answer. Am I asking that? Okay.
1: Yeah, no, you are. Um, that's a good question.
0: And it's okay to reflect on that. I mean, this is the reality of having an unscripted show, you know, like yeah. this. Uh, and I, but I think this is where people listen in and they turn up the volume because they're like, I know somebody you and I both know and is a great strength coach. I'm not going to say their name told me the other day, they're like, i stayed off social media because I've been scared of criticism for a long time. And I used to kind of go at people that were on social media and they're like, now I'm kind of coming around and seeing the value. Because I think they put something out and a bunch of coaches reached out and were like, hey, this was really helpful. And that individual didn't think what they shared was special. Um, but what they realized now is like, okay, maybe it's all right to kind of deal with some criticism. I don't care if you know the performance director somewhere halfway across the world sees this and wants to make a judgment because i'm showing the reality of what we do and and the context as it pertains to this environment so yeah just even if you have to stumble or stammer through it walk me through what you think about that and take your time
1: yeah i think i used to be i think in the camp of i would i used to post a lot more than i do currently and i think i've just become a lot more um selective about when i choose to post something or what i choose to post and i think i go on i go on twitter and i read more on social media than i than i do participate in and i think i like to kind of take note i guess of what what kind of content is being put out there and i see still there's so there is a lot of criticism and that doesn't bother me at all because i think what i've learned too is that there's a million and one ways to do our jobs. And a lot of the the banter and some of the criticism out there, and there's a lot of talk about different exercises and exercise selection and all this stuff. And you, oh, see it's people, you see a lot of people arguing and talking about stuff that doesn't matter. And so I guess when I post, I, I don't want to post anything about that. I try to, I guess, if I'm going to post something, I want it to be something of value in terms of what I believe our roles as coaches are, and talk about a little bit more of the other side of things rather than like what I'm doing with my athletes. Because to be honest, it doesn't really matter, because there's, like I said, a million a million ways to do it. And I think that's one of the things I've learned the most in the last six months is, honestly, my program and what I do with my athletes is the last thing I think about on a daily basis, and that's which
0: is paradoxical because you'd think that the way we are, you. People would rather have it where we're all doing the same thing. You like you. It's almost as if our field really wants some article to come out or book that tells us all the perfect program, regardless of age, gender, you know, sport, whatever. Like, would we be? Do you think we'd be happier if we had that? Do you think if there was this this document that just showed us how to do our job and get the best results all the time? Like, do you not think that would take out the fun and and really the skill of coaching? Because now everybody could do it. Right. Now everybody. Every, you know what I mean? Where would the think, where'd the critical thinking come in? I just don't get it. I don't get if everybody wants some perfect ratio or some percentage or certain amount of sprinting volume. Like, am I off on that? Or I mean, do you think we'd be happier if we had that? No,
1: it's crazy. And it's, it's, I think it comes, it just comes from valid wanting validation. And I think it, it gets hard because there is so much gray area in what we do. And there are so many ways that we can do with that. We want validation that, okay, somebody else is doing this or like I'm if I follow this, at least I can say that somebody else did it and it worked for them. So I must be doing the right thing rather than taking a chance on, okay, like this makes sense in my head and this makes sense for my population or this team that I'm working with. I don't I don't I mean, I don't have an answer for it because I don't truly understand it, but. I mean, it does seem like, okay if somebody wrote an article or if I wrote an article, this is my program with South Carolina women's basketball. This is what we do. These are the exercises. Like I feel like people there would be a pretty good response and people will get excited about that, which, you know, it is it is what it is. But I don't know. We spend a lot of time arguing about single leg versus double leg versus who's ready for what type of progress. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. And I think it is what it is. But I don't, I don't personally understand it. So if I'm going to, if I'm going to put anything out there, I have no problem getting criticized for my program because if I can defend it and if I can explain why it works for our group, then that's fine. I think people are going to get criticized no matter what they do, um, because they don't fully understand your situation. So I guess when it comes to my my approach of social media, I don't want to waste time and put something out there um, that doesn't necessarily better us better myself or better our perception, I guess, as professionals. So I tend to s- stay more on um, the side, you know, that side of sharing articles that I feel are really valuable, or, you know, if something happened, um, you know, a light bulb moment happened with our group or something to try to, you know, make note of that and talk about maybe what it was, or I don't know, I I don't know that I guess I have a True rationale, but I guess I just try to add value, and I don't want to also oversaturate my uh, presence on social media, if that makes sense. Because it's yeah, part of it. And
0: yeah, it makes sense
1: completely. That are very active, and that's great because it is a really valuable tool. But I guess for myself, I don't always feel the need to to pull myself out there.
0: Yeah, and you got to find the right medium if you do right. Like I know I, today I'm. Well, for the last year and a half, I'm far less active on Twitter. What I've realized is, and this is just my opinion, right? So I don't mean to offend anybody, but it's it's a big boy world. <laughs> we'll get offended by things. It happens. Um, I don't think our field knows how to use Twitter. And I just don't think it's made for coaches. You know, we're a field that we want to give information, but also provide examples. How does a medium that provides 140 characters allow for that? I think that's manifested. We see that even more when people will post research articles and want to get in discussions. But again, it's a medium where we're seeking more information, uh, but and and then we're forced to put it in 140, you know, give or take plus character buckets, which is further making that information reductionist, which then people argue about because it's not specific enough. Right. So I remember a while ago, like I was about done with social media in 2016 and then somebody kind of got on me about Instagram and I was like, "Mm, I don't know. Seems like that's for 13 year olds. And this person had worked for Beats by Dre, they had worked for Apple, um, they had worked for a bunch of other corporations where they were like, you know, I'm gonna urge you to kind of give this a second look. You know, why don't you follow some people that are not in your field and and kind of see what they do? And I saw a whole different level of storytelling. I saw people that knew how to communicate to their audience, knew how to show examples of their work, and I was like, this is what I'm gonna do. You know, because if I'm gonna if I'm gonna get on social media, it's got to be something where like, it's not going to be transactional where people can just digest thing. Like it's got to have some meat to it. And what I found is your audience will find you. So like you're spot on, like criticism is going to happen. One of my favorite quotes, I think it's by a gentleman named David Brinkley. And I might butcher this a little bit, but it's a successful person lays the, uh, lays a firm foundation with the bricks others have thrown at them. And I'm like, I I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started just saying, all right, I'm going to put things up there, things I wish I would have known. And I can show a picture to kind of either convey that message in a more indelible format or show a pictorial or videographic representation of what I do. And that's that. And however anybody feels about it, they feel. But at the end of the day, you know, my dad lost his father, um, who would have been my grandfather when my dad was only 13. I have a a lot of family that either have, have... had struggles with cancer or, or heart disease. Some people in my family die relatively early. And I've mentioned this on an earlier episode. Um, so I kind of look at it too as a way that like my future kids will at least get to know a little bit about their dad and maybe what he was going through or what he was thinking during certain times. Of course, it's just a snapshot and a time capsule. It's not like they're going to know me or any of us from our social media or if they would necessarily even want to, but it's something, you know, and so I think you have to have a bigger purpose for why you do that. And and being scared of criticism, you know, like that—that's got to go by the wayside for the potential value that you share. But what I'd be interested in hearing about now is how you've kind of taken those lessons, you know, whether it's from your your early days as a strength coach, whether it's from the things that have evolved from a managerial side and what you saw from a professional development side and how they approach it at Louisville. How have you really taken that and ran with that at your current job, your current location, and and what issues? You know, has it helped with early on? Where have you been able to insert those skills or lessons that have made that transition to South Carolina a little bit smoother for you?
1: Yeah, so you know, this was you know, a big reason why this opportunity here was so attractive was it was the ability for me to kind of take everything that I've learned up to this point and run with it and make something my own. And um, you know, you you never fully understand the situation that you're walking into until you Till you get into it and you kind of dive headfirst and you don't really realize too what skills and what value that you can bring. Um, and so it's been, you know, I kind of told myself coming into it too, regardless of the situation, you know, I didn't want to come to South Carolina and just be the women's basketball strength conditioning coach. Like no doubt that's my job. That's my title. I'm here first and foremost to serve our team and, and help them achieve whatever it is that they want to achieve. But I also knew that, coming here I wanted to say that when I left here I did something that hasn't been done before and I wanted to add value not just to our women's basketball team but to our entire performance department and not just our entire performance department but our entire athletics department and so within the first you know month or two of me being here I made it a point to make sure that I was setting up meetings with our senior administrators I wanted to meet our SWA I wanted to meet people outside of just our team and our facility cuz it's different. And at Louisville we're all under one one facility. And here I have my own weight room with our men's basketball strength coach and we have two other weight rooms and our staff is really really separated. And I have a I have a boss. I have Billy Andersons our performance director, but I don't see Billy. I've seen Billy maybe once in the last couple months. And so I I'm kind of on my own island in a sense. And so for me to be able to figure out where I can add value and for me to really make the impact that I want to, I had to go outside of, of where I'm at and, re- and really try to get to know as many people and be as visible as possible. So I think I've learned just the importance of, um, you know, from a professional standpoint and from, I think, a, a branding and an imaging standpoint for us to be able to help our department and help kind of create the environment that we want to, it's important to have those, uh, have those conversations and have those meetings with people, you know, in the higher ups and, and outside of here. So that was kind of my first task was, I wanna make sure that these people knew who I was and that I knew who they were so we could start that relationship. You know, I've been in meetings with the academic side of things and trying to bridge the gap and figure out, cause we have the number one, I didn't even know this until I got here. We have the number one ranked exercise science undergraduate program in the country. Really? No, no existing, really no existing relationship between athletics and that department. And so, you know, I got to sit down at lunch with, you know, the head of the undergrad department, one of the top advisors and figure out how can we start to maybe create a pipeline, whether it's with interns or whatever it is, how can we start to utilize our resources better? Because what I realized quickly was that there's, you know, it's, it's kind of your typical collegiate setting where you have a lot of people in, in silos and a lot of people that don't really understand the... Um, the value or the resources that they have around them and how collaboration is kind of the key driver of that. And so that was kind of task number one for me is how can we collaborate? How can I collaborate? Even if it's just within women's basketball to start, but how can I utilize my resources better to do not just my job better, but to service our team better? Um, And so I think just seeing how that was run at Louisville was a big driver and coming here and really wanting to help create a better environment Um, because there's, the resources are endless here. Um, You know, we're fortunate. We have a great budget. We have all the pieces in place, but, you know, I noticed quickly, there's just some inefficiencies in how how things are, how things are organized. And so that was, you know, that's been a big, um, big focus for me, you know, aside from obviously doing my job really well in terms of servicing our team. But, you know, I think those are some of the skills that I've learned over you know, that have prepared me for this. And it's a work in progress, no doubt. But I think that's, you know, that's how I kind of view my, view my role is I want to make sure that when I leave here that there's a, there's a system that's in place, or there's an organization that's in place that, you know, we've got a pretty well oiled machine. And I can say that, okay, I helped create some change in terms of better, better utilizing our resources and better, you know, servicing our student athletes.
0: And what role would you say that, you know, when, when you're looking at trying to create change, what role would you say creating um, some kind of, let's just call it a challenge network, right? Something where your staff kind of understands, hey, there's an inherent responsibility uh, within our staff to not only continuously evaluate what we're doing, uh, you know, in or, from a professional standpoint, not not necessarily looking at training on the floor. Of course, you're doing that as well, but I think that's been well covered in a lot of other podcasts. So I don't know if we need to go over specific monitoring strategies although I'm happy to go there if you'd like. But what do you guys do to kind of hold each other accountable and say, hey, here's some here's some things that we think natively have worked for South Carolina and our our area for a long time. Uh, here's things where we seem to be getting comfortable. What kind of permission do you think people need to challenge critic- and criticize ideas? And what role does that play in true collaboration? You know, because I think a lot of times people think collaboration is like, oh, let's get together. let's Let's... <laughs> Excuse me. Throw some ideas on a whiteboard, or it actually might be sitting there and saying, "All right, we're chasing a future version of ourselves here. Where have we gone astray, and what do we need to do better?" Go. What role do you think creating that kind of network does in, in creating long-term change and that legacy you want to leave?
1: I mean, I think that's I think that's huge, and I think that's something that hasn't been done enough of. Is okay talking about how we truly evaluate ourselves and our departments and. And not just the impact that we're making, but are we truly effective at what we say we are? And, you know, to be honest, and in my experience here, I'm still figuring out what that looks like because our staff is is very spread out and we we don't meet on a regular basis. We don't have a, a really unified approach to how we evaluate ourselves and we don't have a unified approach to, I guess, how we how we do what we do. And so. It's, you know, a blessing and a curse and it's a blessing that I can kind of and I've had conversations with some of our other coaches as well about how we are evaluating ourselves and how we are, you know, how we are running what we do and how we can kind of come at things in a more unified approach. But for right now, I've kind of realized that the biggest impact that I can make is try to use the standards that I hold myself to in terms of how I should be evaluated as a professional. And I've also, I've tried to just educate, uh, administration. I've tried to educate my sport coaches. I've tried to educate, you know, anybody that I can on, on a daily basis about how we, how we, how I do my job, how we should be evaluated. And, you know, I had a really good conversation with our SWA the first time that we met, because I, I asked her straight up, I said, how do you feel that we should be evaluated as strength and conditioning professionals? And you could tell she had never been asked that question before. And so it was an opportunity for me to talk about how I was evaluated uh, at Louisville, how I feel that we should actually be evaluated and, you know, just have an open dialogue about that and try to create and start some of those dialogues. And from there, it's, it's kind of spurred some follow-ups, you know, within some of our, you know, other administration and just our coaches in general. But I'm trying to start on a smaller scale about how how we can make some immediate changes on, on what I do on a daily basis and try to pull along some of our other performance coaches to kind of become a more unified front. But it's a, it's a work in progress, and we don't have it right now. Um,
0: yeah, but I think you're onto something there. How did you – would you mind sharing some of the the ways you were evaluated at Louisville or even some of your ideas? And I don't even care if you, if you consider them half-baked or awful. Like, throw everything, right? Because there's people listening that – they're, they may not even care about, oh, is that foolproof? Could that be objectively measured? They may just want, I mean, I think we're in a field or a spot right now in the field where we just need, the more ideas, the better, because that's going to drive discussion. And it's that old idea that if we're trying to come up with a business now that could really help people, it's okay if we have a hundred crappy ideas, but let's come up with a few. You know, I, I, I don't understand that reticence within our field as well, where we feel like everything we say has got to be perfect or the answer, it, that goes back to criticism Are we that scared to like, feel like, you know, we're the emperor without clothes? It's okay. Like, you know, what's, what's, what are some ideas that you guys came up with collectively of how you think you can be evaluated?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So really we had three big kind of measures that we went by. And the first, you know, was number of, we looked at a number of non-contact injuries. So obviously there's a lot of factors that go into injuries, but we look at, we had over 10 plus years of injury data for each of our teams. And so we're able to look at trends and we're able to look at, you know, on a yearly basis, it was just a conversation starter at at our, you know, our yearly evaluation. Okay. How many non-contact injuries were there on your team? How long on average did it take for them to get back into sport? You know, how many days were they out? How many practices do they miss? How many games do they miss? Like, and if, you know, depending on what those numbers look like can just spur a discussion. Okay. Why did the, why did we see three people, tear their hamstrings this year versus last year, there were zero. Is there something that we can go back and evaluate and figure out, you know, could, could I have done something differently? And so it's just a conversation starter. So we would look at injuries. We would look at trends and in injuries, how much time was missed. And obviously multiple people are involved in that process and in multiple factors playing to it, we can never completely prevent injuries. We know that, but we have to at least look at it because if you're not paying attention to it, how can you figure out where where changes can be made? Uh, we would look at athlete development over their career. So whether that athlete was with us for two years, for four years, what performance metrics were we looking at? You know, for that sport, and are they act, are they truly getting better? And how does that relate to their actual on field, or on court, or whatever you know, pool performance? You know, and, and looking at metrics that matter for that sport. Um, and obviously, it's really easy to make a freshman and a sophomore athlete better. You can throw the kitchen sink at them and they can show improvement. But are you still seeing improvement their junior and senior year in, in certain key metrics or are you becoming stagnant? So we would look at, okay, is this athlete actually physically getting better? And then we also looked at wins and losses because I think a lot of the time, you know, we kind of take it out of our hands and say, you know, I can't, I can't make an impact on if the team wins or loses. And I think that's a bunch of BS because there's a lot of things that we do behind the scenes. There's a lot of things that we do in terms of being able to impact that. And I think number one kind of goes back to the injuries. If you have your best players healthy and available to play, your chances of winning are going to be a lot greater. So we would, we would look at all three of those things. And obviously I think we play a part in all three, no doubt. Um, Are we completely responsible for all three? Definitely not, but it's at least a way for us to measure objectively the type of impact that we are contributing to. Um, So I think those are starters. And, you know, I think a lot of it has been, okay, do you have a good relationship with your sport coaches Are your sport coaches happy? Do they like you, you know, do you get along well with the support staff? You know, is it a good fit with the team? Like, yes, some of those, those things are important and you have to have those relationships, but it's not really defining or measuring the impact of our,
0: of our presence on that team. So, and looking at the present side of things, so you knocked it out of the park with how we can look at it a little bit more objectively from a training side, looking at non-contact injuries. And I love that you have a decade of data. I mean, I think that could be a book that you probably write a decade of data. Um, so that you're looking at my father was a stockbroker and he would always say, you know, if the market dumps one day, it's crazy. People freak out. They sell everything they want to get out of the market. And he's like, despite the fact that you know, over a century's worth of data shows that the market's always going to have an uptick, You know, even when you look at recessions and, and the Great Depression and things like that, people get too concerned with occurrences and don't look at trends with a long-term kind of non-emotional view. You've got to see where you're really at. Yeah. So it sounds like you guys kill that. Here's one thing that I, I think is going to be interesting. As we continue to try to find ways to objectively and subjectively measure and I hate this term when people say, quote unquote, the soft side, because uh, the art of coaching isn't a soft side, right? Like behavioral research, psychological research, let's just call it psychosocial and behavioral research in general far predates that of training. So there are ways to objectify leadership effectiveness. I, I think what's, what's interesting and in some of the things that I've heard people talk about so far is they never consider maybe the athlete or what the research would define as the followers determination of what makes it an effective leader. You know, like we always think, well, is it, is some of the things you said, your, your relationship with the athletic department, the sport coaches, all these things. And yes, it is all those things, but how, how would our athletes evaluate us? I think that's an interesting question. Would they just evaluate if we, if we went up to some of our more discerning athletes, ones that were critical thinkers. And we said, Hey, how would you evaluate me at the end of the year? Is it just getting stronger, feeling more fit? Or are there other things that are important to you? Like what, what is important to you as a coach? What, who are some of the best coaches you've had, regardless of whether it's sport, strength and conditioning, what have you? And why, you know, why were they effective? But I think, I think there's something to be said for that, getting our athletes' opinions. And of course, not all of them are, some of them are going to be like, I don't know, dude. Like, and I don't want to answer your question and leave me alone. Like I have class, you know, but I think it would be interesting to get, I know I've asked some of my athletes that and it's a little bit different because some of these folks are at different points of their career. And and I think, you know, they're a little bit older. So, you know, what if they're fathers and they're 26 now and, and that they're going to give you far different answers than than a younger age, you know, kid that doesn't have, uh, you know, their, their responsibilities and maybe hasn't been thrust into a leadership role themselves, which is going to give them a limited view. Yeah. But do you think there's room for that? Do you think there's room for athletes' evaluations? on a coach and, and even maybe us coming up with ways where we can guide them and how to do that. So we have a better idea of how we are doing in, in their view. I think some people would throw that out the field, but I'd be interested in your, in your take on that. Is that a dumb idea?
1: No, I don't think so at all. And honestly, we, so <laughs> like my first couple of years, we used to do kind of an exit interview or like an exit survey with our seniors and kind of along it was kind of getting at some of the same questions, but more so like our effectiveness at them, you know, from an education standpoint, from a physical side of things, we would do, you know, we wanted to get feedback on on their experience as a student athlete. But I think even on a smaller scale, I think that's a, you know, a yearly evaluation that you could do. And I, honestly, it's something that I do, in, I guess, to an extent in terms of, I'm always trying to get athlete feedback in terms of you know, I want to make sure that I'm providing them with what they need and not just talking at them and not just doing what I think is is best for them, but actually asking them and involving them in the process. And when I first start with a team and I did this when I first started here is I, I have them fill out kind of a, just a little, a few questions on me, just trying to get some conversation starters and get to know them a little bit as people. But that's a question that I actually ask is what is, I ask them for three qualities of a coach that they really either respect or you know name three qualities of a favorite coach that they've had and I try to ask them and just get some feedback and as to either how they like to be coached or you know what what they look for what really resonates with them that's something that I've done before but I absolutely think you know we talk a lot we always want to have kind of the control right we want to be the the one in charge and we want to be the one that's making the decisions and we know best but at the end of the day it's who we're influencing is, is these student athletes and it's their experience that they have with us. And so, you know, what kind of experience are they having? Is it one where the athlete centered approach where I'm asking them for feedback and I'm asking them for, you know, this and that, or am I just putting what I want to on them all the time and not asking for feedback and maybe not even truly connecting with them. So I think I'm, I'm much more okay with me kind of putting my guard down a little bit and admitting that, okay, I don't know something. And that's something that I've had to do since I started here because there's a brand new, brand new team. And there are a lot of times I had to just back off and be like, okay, you know what? I don't know. I don't understand you. Help me out a little bit and just asking those questions. So I think that's a huge piece of it. It's got to be, it's got to be an athlete centered approach because at the end of the day, yeah, we want our sport coaches to be happy, but the ones that we're coaching are these athletes. And if we're not. Right, well, we're better not coaching theoretically then
0: That's on us. Yeah. And theoretically, again, assuming that they could give us the answers that would fit into objective metrics to a degree. But I think that's a whole nother topic. I don't think we I don't think coaching coaching is already an inherently complex, somewhat ambiguous, not rationally. You know, it's not a rational, predictive sequence of events. So I don't think I'll go on record saying I don't think coaches fully can be objectively evaluated. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be a lot of subjective to that. and You've got to embrace that. I mean, look at artists. Right, like there are there are paintings of abs there are abstract paintings that sell for millions of dollars that most people look at and they're like that's crap like what is that you know what I mean but so if you look at anything that involves an artistic or creative approach which problem solving does real world real time you know coaching and all that that's problem solving at its purest it's never going to be objectively quantified there's no algorithm for human relations that is foolproof all the time going to give us what we want. But I think part of that leadership lie that we're fed is like, all right, we're the, we're the rational, educated ones. We need to find a way to evaluate ourselves. Who better to evaluate us than the end user? And there's a really good uh, article, I think it was done in 2000, that really talked about the field of leadership studies. Um, they described it as kind of this theoretically inadequate. They say it's theoretically adequate, inadequate from its inception. Because most leadership studies primarily exclude the followers' opinions. And and followers is just a term they use to define those being led. That's not my vernacular. That's what the research will kind of hold to. But it excludes followers' perceptions or definitions of what they think is effective leadership. And really, it only takes one very influential or a good or powerful follower to do nothing for even the best leadership to fail. I don't care who you are as a leader. You know, if, if Tom Brady decides that he is not on board with Bill Belichick at some point in time, which I'm sure has happened, that's conflict resolution. I'm, I know they've gotten into it plenty of times, whether it's about his trainer or what have you, but all it takes is for Brady or somebody else or a number of people to be fully not on board. And that leader doesn't, it doesn't matter what tactics they use. And yeah, we we see that all the time. Certain people work out with certain teams and organizations. Certain times they don't. What better way to showcase how fluid that is? But I, I just think that we forget about the ones that can probably evaluate us best. Now, granted, again, they've got to have the education and training to be able to do that, which may or may not be a reality. But it doesn't mean they should be excluded from the process.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you again, you can definitely make that argument. Okay, these are eighteen to twenty-two year olds how do they know how to evaluate you? But I think if you ask the right questions and if you truly, I think it goes both ways. If you truly have the effect or have the relationship with them that you either do or you don't, like they're going to be able to answer and be able to reflect upon that relationship honestly. And that's all you can ask at the end of the day. There might not be, you know, five objective questions that they have to answer, but like they're going to be able to explain their relationship with you. And that's going to tell you right there whether or not, it was impactful or whether or
0: not it wasn't. Yeah, it doesn't always need to be. I mean, my, my best friend's got a, a uh, his son, I think is five and he's trying to learn how to play basketball and um, it, the, he, he struggles, right? Especially compared to some of the other kids that he's playing with. And the coach just doesn't have a whole lot of patience for it. My friend's describing it. He's like, I sit and watch this whole practice in like anxiety that my son is just going to get just derided. He's like, I don't care if he gets criticized. Like I want him to grow and he needs to be challenged but like he's trying, you know, he's just not the most athletic kid. And one day he's like, you know, I don't want to go to practice. And he's like, you're going to practice, but why don't you want to go? And he's like, he, d- you know, the coach doesn't make it fun. I don't learn, you know, and this is a five-year-old, right? Like, so sports and practice and coaching isn't always going to be fun. Like we're not, we're not preaching some kind of like everybody gets a metal thing here, but even that five-year-old's feedback of like coach isn't making learning fun, like that's valuable feedback. And so, yeah, for anybody that's listening, and is like, well, I I train eighteen year olds that can't even make up their mind on what they want to wear that day or forget their socks. Like, i care less what they think about me. Quit looking for the answer. Just take breadcrumbs. Take breadcrumbs and see. Kind of, it's it's little bits of data that you collect along the way that may show you something completely irrelevant or may give you some good feedback. But either way, you should be getting athlete feedback. I don't think you should just look at that and be like, it doesn't matter. That's that's a bit silly. Um, Well, you've touched on some awesome, awesome points. There are a couple more like kind of rapid fire things I want to throw at you if you're comfortable with it and you have the time. You got you got another five minutes. All right. Uh, And and these all kind of come from a collective things. One, my own inherent curiosity Two, we get a lot of feedback, people that comment through my Instagram and or uh, email me. But when you when you think about. Nobody likes to think about this, but it is a reality, right? When you think about the way that transitions happen in our career, and it's, it's a reality. Coaches get fired every day. If you were fired today, what's your backup plan?
1: I would go back to school. I've been playing around with the idea of getting my PhD for the last few years. I think that would that would be enough for me to just do it. Um, yeah, I would. I love it. What would your PhD be you know, I've gone back and forth a little bit with that because I do, there's, you know, I have a huge nerd side to me and I love the sports science side of things. And, you know, I've been lucky to meet a lot of research, researchers um, and, you know, have my hand in some research. So part of me is like, yeah, I would love to go back and, you know, do my PhD in sports science. And then part of me is like, no, especially being in collegiate athletics, we need more people in senior leadership positions that understand Kind of our world, and so part of me is thought maybe organizational leadership or higher education administration um, to be able to be, you know, in a position to help create some of the change that, that we want to see. So I go back and forth between the two.
0: I think you'd be great at that. That's a lot of what I'm doing, working right now uh, within the research of some of the resources that I'm putting out and working on, and even looking at maybe doing a professional doctorate. Uh, I don't think I could go back to school and do the PhD. Not because I don't want to, but just being a coach who's self-employed and, you know, I coach during the week, I travel on the weekends. There's not really that option for me to, you know, kind of go back to, and and the professional doctorate stuff is super interesting because it allows you to contribute research that's directly applied to the field. So I'm doing some some work on that now. And I think you'd kill, I think you'd kill with that. and, And remind me, I'll shoot you some resources that I think you would find super interesting and I'd love your feedback on. So that's a great answer. All right. From a professional development standpoint, in your opinion... And and so don't worry about pleasing everybody here. That's your opinion. Where are coaches not investing enough time? Meaning like from what they're learning or, or subjects they're overlooking from a professional development standpoint, where are coaches not investing enough of their time?
1: I think it's twofold. I think number one, we're not investing enough time in ourselves as people outside of our profession. Um, And I think that's especially true for younger coaches. Um, And that's something that I've had to learn the hard way. I think we validate ourselves a lot through what we do and we take our work home with us and we don't spend enough time developing ourselves. Um, And really, I mean, like you talk about finding our true identity as a person. Um, And I think that we can suffer because of that. And I think number two is we don't, we spend a lot of time investing in the latest methods and, RPR and PRI and all these new techniques and new methods, and we don't spend enough time um, investing in learning how to influence behavior.
0: Um, So you you kind of answered my next question in that you said we don't spend enough time looking at how to influence behavior. Obviously, you're speaking near and dear to my heart. There, I think influence is the ultimate like kind of performance pathway because you can. Optimize engagement or at least enhance engagement, which is going to enhance their training and everything else they go about doing and, and just their commitment. Um, but where you, I think you might have dabbled in. So, so get at me if, if you already feel like you answered this. Conversely, what do you think is part of the coaching or training process that you think many people overthink at times? And why is that? What are people overthinking within our field?
1: I mean, I, I suffer from this. I'm still, I constantly overthink what I'm actually doing from, I still think we, we argue and go back and forth a lot about like what we're actually doing with our athletes and not enough about how we're doing it or it's not so much we're missing why we're doing it. I think we know why we're doing it, but it's more so the how, how are we delivering it? How are we organizing it? How are we, um, how are we putting it all together? And I know we're, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. I get really caught up sometimes in the in the minute details of what I'm actually doing. What am I doing each day of the week? Is it too much? Is it not enough? Is it the right sequence? And I think we get caught up in that a lot because there is there are so many options and so many answers. And so it's kind of like that, okay, we want validation that this is the right thing.
0: Um, I love it. I think you hit, we got really obsessed with that whole start with why thing. You know, like it is important, like it's important to like, let people know why you're doing it. But we've, we have really lost our way to a degree with forgetting about the how, how you go about implementing something is so critically important, maybe even more so than the why, um, I I would argue that if you present, oh, go ahead.
1: Than the what too. Yeah. Like what I, like what I do, my program is so much more secondary to the how. And I, I mean, I've had to learn that the hard way too. but I've, that's definitely something that's been such an eye opener for me starting this position. It's just how is so much more important than what.
0: And I think what's what's interesting about that, too, is people immediately could take what you just say. Um, and then they're like, well, are you saying that programming is not important? I, I got that a lot when the, the minute the book came out. And, you know, like you watched me coach. You watched me coach a good bit. And you know that I would nerd out about programming, periodization, agility as much as anybody but then the minute I started talking about influence, human behavior, organizational strategy, people were like, "Well, are you saying that training is not important?" And I'm just like, "What? Like, what? I like listen. If I say I like Mexican food, does that mean I don't eat Asian food? You know what I mean? Like, where is it exclusionary to, to say these things? So, all right, and the final one, you've knocked them out. I appreciate that you don't bullshit your way through the answers or give politically respect or p- correct responses. Uh, and this is tricky. I got to think about how I want to phrase this so it's not too leading. There has been a lot of confusion, well, I shouldn't say a lot. There's been a lot of confusion in a very small subset of individuals about the word buy-in. You know, it, in my book I talk about buy-in as trust. I think it's synonymous. I think when somebody's bought in, they trust you, they trust the process, they're committed. What does buy-in mean to you? Does it mean trust? Does it mean something else or or what do you what do you think it means?
1: Yeah. Um
0: And is it a term you use regularly? Like do you do you do you think it's a real thing? And don't you can disagree. Trust me, I'm not you're in my good graces for the rest of our life. So I this is a podcast where it's safe to call bullshit on something you don't agree with. So feel free to answer as you want.
1: I think buy-in exists. I will say I will start with that. I think buy-in exists. I think people look at it as like, Okay, what like you're selling something that they're buying and I think I think you hit it on the head i do think buy-in is a byproduct of trust and belief and i would say you know i would even throw commitment in, into what you're doing but i think the the trust in you as a person i think everything else follows from that and i think because ultimately you know now i'm just going to speak from experience here so i came into a situation yeah where i mean the walls that were built from these from our athletes were so high they didn't let anybody in that i mean i came in at, as an outsider and i've had to fight and claw my way to try to break some of these walls down and you see you see that once you start to do that once you become kind of that consistent presence where you can communicate with them not just communicate with them but connect with them and you show up you say what you're going to do or you say what you mean, you mean what you say, you do what you're going to say, and you do that day in and day out, slowly those walls start to come down a little bit. And that trust starts to build. And you see that once that trust starts to build a little bit, you don't have to start, you don't have to have the conversations and you don't have to have the experiences that that you once did. And so I think you see, I think it's a byproduct. And I think that because of one's ability to to build trust, as in somebody starts to see results, and I think results can come in the form of the relationship that starts to form, but also results, physical results that they can, that are tangible, that they can see, that they can feel. I think, I think that in itself is buy-in, and I think, you know, buy-in's an easy way to kind of, to classify it, but at the end of the day, I think buy-in just is Part of the relationship equation, and I think that's that's the business that we're in is the business of relationships and the, the business of trust and influence. And um, so I, I, I think I can see both sides of the equation where like people don't like the term buy in, but inherently it's there. But I think it's just disguised too in some of those other things. If that makes any sense, I don't know. But
0: yeah, I mean, it does. I think Dan, what, you know, people always want books to read. I, I think people got me to look at you use the term selling. People who got me to, uh, Dan Pink got me to look at that term differently. Like when we think selling, we, and this is interesting case study in and of itself. Why do we assume that when somebody's selling something that they're trying to get one over on us? You know, like what does Marriott hotels sell? Occupancy, right? Like lodging. Okay. Are they trying to trick us? You know, uh, maybe I guess, are they trying to trick us into they're a better option than uh, Sheridan, you know, or, or are they a better option than something else? Uh, what is... What you know? What, what is Nissan trying to sell you? Well, a car. Okay, what well, that's transportation. Does that mean they're trying to trick you? Well, the responsibility or the answer to that depends on the person doing the selling. You know, like that's how you could have a salesman that has, is very transparent, easy, gives you all the information you need, boom, done. And that's become a business model in and of itself, right? You look at things like, Carfax. You look at you know Carvana that take out the middleman. All this now, of course, if you have some huckster down the road that you know didn't wasn't fortunate enough to be raised by a mother and a grandma with values and things like that, and, and how they treat people and the grace that you mentioned at the beginning, then that's another. So the point is, is anything any virtue can become a vice, right? Look at education. Education is a form of selling, right? You are trying to get people to understand the value of a certain idea or the development. Like if if you go do a PhD, people are going to sell you on that. So I think, I think people have to look at selling differently. Like the term selling is not a negative term. It's how you wield any bit of information. So to summarize what you said, would I be accurate in saying that you think buying is a byproduct of results over rhetoric, right? Getting results, relationships, patience, and, um, what, what am I missing there? Is there anything else that you'd hit?
1: No, I, I think... Communication? Yeah. I mean, I think communication is, is part of it. I'd say connection, you know, connection over... connections. that's a better word. And I think like you said, patience is a huge part of it. Um, and kind of going back to what you had just said, I think selling too, it's just like this negative connotation, right? Of like manipulation. And so it's... But at the end of the day, like you said, we are... At the end of the day, we have to we have to have belief in what we're doing and who we are as people. And it's not selling for coming from a place of bad intentions where you're trying to manipulate people into thinking a certain way or doing a certain thing. Like no doubt we are trying to influence behavior, but it's coming, but understanding what our intention is, is that, is I think key. And I think that's the separator between like maybe that negative thought when it comes to buy-in and selling versus okay, like we are, we are in the business of, changing behavior and influencing behavior, but I think it's the it's the intention and I think it's the way that we do it. Like you think of like, okay, these skeezy salesmen that are, you know, telling you what you want to hear to get you to influence, you know, influence your decision. Well, no, that's that's not what we're doing. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, without it I mean listen, anybody that's got a phone out right now or, you know, has access to the internet, Google the word manipulate. If you do that, more than likely. The number one definition that comes up as that verb is to handle or control a tool, mechanism, et cetera, typically in a skillful manner. Synonyms are to operate, to work. I'll say that again. Manipulate means to handle or control a tool, mechanism, et cetera, typically in a skillful manner. So why do we even think manipulate is a negative term? You could say to handle or control and that tool could be communication, our ability to relate to others to do that in a skillful manner. So this is where I challenge all of you guys listening. Don't take things at face value in terms of the terminology you see out there. Like We were taught to read research and look at the methods, the subjects, all these things. But then we get hung up on a word like manipulation, manipulate, selling. Even if you look up manipulation, the action of manipulating something in a skillful manner. And so I think that like you know just challenging ourselves in these assumptions and you know we're we're looking at this stuff as as it's a, it's it's a negative thing you know you look at selling okay the definition is to persuade someone on the merits of blank uh, that could be, uh, you know, the, the work of Tchaikovsky, like they say in, in the Google uh, definition I'm looking at now, that could be on the merits of education, why somebody should go do an internship. You're selling them on that idea. You're communicating something. There's a principle of you're trying to get across the value and say, Hey, this is, this is worth your money, or this is an exchange for your resource, like a time, you know, time to me is the most valuable resource. So that would be the challenge I leave everybody with my, I think you nailed everything, um, We're probably, I think you are maybe the the ninth or 10th episode I've recorded. And I think that this is something that is going to be a staple if I continue to do this. And and whether I do or not is going to depend on the feedback of the listeners. So guys, if you're listening, please put some honest reviews, criticisms, things like that up there. Let me know if you're enjoying it. But even if I'm 300 episodes deep, I think that this is going to be one of the foremost episodes that people listen to again and again. Like I'm wowed. So thank you so much for your time. No,
1: thank you, Brad. I appreciate it. Obviously, I've appreciated you for a long time, but you continue to better our field and, and better me as a person. But I appreciate you having me on.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. If people want to get a hold of you, what are two ways that are the predominant or easiest or more efficient ways while still providing you know professional boundaries for you? What, what's the best way to get a hold of you?
1: Yeah, I'll be on. I'm really bad at, at answering emails sometimes, but I would say to start, I will give my email. Um, it is nbenetti at mailbox.sc.edu.
0: I'll put it in the show notes for everybody listening, so don't worry about spelling or anything. Perfect.
1: And then I would say social media would be be the second one, most likely Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Coach Benetti. Um, from there, honestly, I prefer to. To speak via phone whether it's text or phone call so from there you know if you're looking to get a hold of me i'm happy to give out my number but uh, i'll uh, save that for maybe the few that that want to chat
0: yeah i i love i'm the same way I, it's i'm i'm so antiquated with how well i just view it as a more personal efficient way like when you can get on the phone i will say this to anybody here's a hint and this is a development hit from a professionalism standpoint and molly did it perfect A lot of times coaches, there are certain things coaches don't check. Like I never check my Facebook messages. I just don't, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, it's all too much. You've got to funnel it. Um, There are coaches out there, and this is a huge tip if you're a young coach listening, that are not going to give out their information directly, but it is out there. And whether or not they respond to you is going to be dependent on your level of perspicacity or shrewdness to find that information yourself. Because what I mean is this. 30, 40, 100 people will reach out to people on social media, Instagram, whatever, and demand an answer. I demand an answer. Like, you're accessible to me now. I need it. I need it. But there are certain coaches that are like, you know what? The people I want to have conversations with are the ones that are shrewd enough to find my direct email or anything because it's on my LinkedIn or it's on my professional website or it's on this. So do some research. Don't expect to be spoon-fed. That's something I'm going to continually harp on and challenge on. I don't care how tired of it anybody gets. Respect people's time. Do your due diligence. Before you reach out to Coach Benetti, check out her work. You're going to get more out of the discussion when you do. Um, It's going to save her from having to repeat things and you from having to kind of stumble around things that she's maybe already talked about in depth. Do your research. Be respectful. Be professional. Um, And thanks for your time. Molly, thank you again. I hope you have a good
1: rest of the day. Thank you, Brett. You too. Take care.